Go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word, however you have it. Find your way over to Genesis chapter 8. Over the past two weeks, we saw God declare that he would destroy the entire corrupt or sin-corrupted world. Uh, we, we saw God instruct Noah to build this ridiculously big boat for his family and all a variety of animals on it. And we saw the waters flood the earth, killing all the people and all the creatures who were outside the ark. So that's where we're at. Not the brightest of moments in history, but that's, that's where we're at. Um, so you know Genesis is this this ancient account that has, is written by Moses later on, right, as he is uh, carried along by the Holy Spirit, right, inspired to, to write this revelation of our God, of Yahweh, right? And, and, and you probably never noticed something here, though, I, I bet. I, you know, until it was pointed out to me, I, I read through Genesis a number, a number of times and never saw any of this, but um, <clears throat> there is a, uh, a fascinating structure that is running from chapter 6 through chapter 8, and you can see it if you've got your bulletin insert there. I've inserted it to make it a little easier for you to see. It's easier to show than explain, right? Or it's on the sermon resource page uh, as well. Now, this, this literary structure is what is called a chiasm. Uh, from the Greek letter, chi, key, whatever you want to call it. Um, I know fraternities call it chi, so we'll call it that. Uh, anyway, it looks like the, the English X is kind of the picture there. And so this, this structure is called it because it's, it looks like half of an English X is what you're seeing there, or chi, which is what that letter looks like. And, and I know, that makes you wonder, well, why not just use the letter V, which is the same thing, but you don't have to say half of it, right? And I think the answer is there's no V-shaped letter in Greek to begin with. Um, I really, I'd prefer they just call it a greater than sign, right, to use that there, and then we could just call it a greater-ism, and you could look in there, and, and if you look now, you can probably picture it a lot better. It's a, it's a greater-ism, right? Um, <clears throat> but back to the point of why this matters, right, because I, I want you to notice this pattern here, that it, that it goes out, uh, and then it reverses and comes back in a, in a parallel well. It comes back as if it's been mirrored there, right? And, and, and you can see, right, that the same chiastic, or chiastic structure uh, using the numbers, which is the second little structure in your, your bulleted insert there. You've got the 7, 7, 40, 150, and then it inverses and goes the other way. Um, and that's for you to see. And, and I'm not just telling you this <clears throat> because it's like, you know, linguistically or aesthetically fascinating in, in any way, although it is. I'm, I'm showing you this because it, it's an intentional structure. It is actually meant to draw your attention to the very middle. It's, it's the dot in the bullseye, right? The red dress, the sharpest point of a photo. It's, it's to draw your attention into that. And so the, the middle of this chiasm is the focal point of the entire Noah narrative. <clears throat> and in both of these greater than-isms, I'm going to call them, um, what do we find is the middle here? <clears throat> Where is the Lord drawing your attention? Look for yourself. You see it there? 8-1. But God remembered Noah. <clears throat> right here is the central message of the story of Noah. But God remembered Noah. And we're going to return to that after we read, and we're going to read in just a moment. But first, I do also want to point out another parallel that's been going on between Adam and, and Noah. Just it helps us to see the wide-angle picture of what's going on here. Adam was um, the first of all of humanity, and Noah is going to be the first of humanity after the flood. They both are related to all 8 billion people who are on the earth, on the planet today. Uh, both walked with God, we are told. Both are given a promise and a blessing from God. Both are instructed to exercise dominion over the creatures. Both are told to multiply, to be fruitful. 
They both have three sons. In the weeks ahead, we'll, we'll see that they both work the soil, right? A gardener, a, a farmer. Um, both sin in, in how they eat or drink the fruit of the plant after the creation or the recreation. Both are uh, exposed and embarrassed at their nakedness after they sin. Both of them have a wicked son. And I think most importantly, they both fail to be the Savior that we need. They both fail to be perfect um, but both of them are part of God's work of redemption that culminates in Jesus. Um, and so you begin to see this, right? And um, let's, let's get to our passage, and we'll get back into some of that more a little later. And we're going to begin <clears throat> right where, you know, X marks the spot. So, so Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. Got my glasses today. Look at that. Everything's so clear. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. But God remembered Noah, all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made the wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. And the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had, had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. It went, and, it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove <clears throat> from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole, still on the face of the whole earth. And so he put out his hand and took her in, and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And so Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove. And she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the month, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and he looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth was dried out. And then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and, and, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the ground on the earth, and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, uh, maybe we are rested and excited to be here this morning, to be in your word, to be learning, but also... Maybe we're tired, maybe we're frustrated, whatever the case may be, help us this morning to truly hear your word. Help us to intellectually understand it, help us to feel what we should feel, to see what we should see, and to learn what you intend to teach us from your word. Oh, Holy Spirit, help us to trust you as you guide us. And we pray all of this in the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. <clears throat> I've told y'all before, most of you know, but I grew up the youngest of three boys, and that shaped a lot of what my life is like. 
Um, when, when we were very young, my oldest brothers played on this soccer team that my dad coached. They were called the War Eagles, and uh, I even had this miniature version of their things. I was kind of their mascot uh, at, at the time. Uh, but they'd go to these games, and I would go along, and, and as they played their game, and I couldn't care less about watching, I would go off on some adventure on my own and, and come back. And uh, on one of these occasions, I returned from my adventure just as my father was pulling away in our big red suburban that was just stock full of a bunch of players that needed ride homes afterwards. And I remember running after that truck with my little legs uh, before just giving up and bawling simply because I had been forgotten. They had left without me somehow. Uh, a mother from another team came by to comfort me when she saw a little boy crying. And, um, she started to ask me these questions. I remember, uh, do, do you know what your address is, right? Like, she's going to drive me home. And I was like, no. You know, do you, do you know what your phone number is? Like, no. Like, and, and these questions just started to cement in my mind. I am, you know, this is, this is not good. But, you know, I didn't know at the time, but we're in the fourth largest city in, in the nation. This is the, the 1980s. You're not looking anybody up on Facebook or otherwise. I, I'm never going to see my family again. I felt incredibly hopeless in that moment, thinking they're really gone forever. And um, that woman was nice enough to wait with me. She assumed eventually they'd remember and come back. And, and that's what happened. At some point on that trip, I don't know how far they got, uh, but at some point, they, you know, it, my dad remembered and he came back for me. You, you ever been forgotten? I mean, in, in that way or, or in, in any other way where you're just forgotten or you ever felt forgotten? King David felt that way when he was writing Psalm 13. In the opening line, we, we hear David pleading with God, How long, O Lord? And then he asks this question, Will you forget me forever? We're told, you know, we're not told if Noah felt forgotten here. But you read this story and you think, what else could he possibly have felt here, right? As day after day, as week after week, as month after month passed by, and he remained in this dark rudderless boat floating on the top of the world. And all the while, as far as we are shown in Scripture, right, there's not a single word from the Lord. Just silence in this moment. You can imagine his prayers, you know, why is it taking so long? Surely everybody is dead by now, God, and you, you said you would save us, so, so why have you abandoned us up here? See, at this point, it's been over five months since they first boarded this ship thinking, oh, this should be fun. Right? Uh, right? They didn't think that. But, but, but can you imagine this, right? You're five months in, and how would you feel, to put this into perspective right now, if you had been in a lock-in with your family since, since early October of 2023 back there, right? You have nothing going on. You're just in there waiting to see what happens next, floating around. That's the situation that they actually find themselves in when we read this verse one here, right? But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with them in the ark. Now, unlike my dad at the soccer park, and unlike, you know, you wondering, oh, did I, did I turn off the oven? I can't remember. I need to run back, right? That, this doesn't mean that God has forgotten Noah in, in that same way. It doesn't mean that Noah's just slipped his mind. Like, like at some moment, God's sitting back. He's like, oh, man, I forgot. I left Noah in the boat. I need to go. Like, that's not what's happening here. You see, this Hebrew expression that we're reading here in verse 1 means that God is ready to act on a previous commitment that he has made. In other words, God's remembering here is expressing God's covenant faithfulness to Noah. 
In chapter 19, we're going to read this, right? That God remembered Abraham. Same phrase, right? And then God acts on Abraham's behalf. And in chapter 30, we're going to hear about God remembered Rachel. And then God acts on Rachel's behalf. When Israel suffered under the Egyptian slavery, 400 years, right? There's not a few weeks, not even a few months. 400 years, they felt absolutely forgotten by God. We've been here forever. It's, you know, we're descendants of descendants of descendants of descendants. But then we read in Exodus 2.24, God remembered his covenant. And that's when God sends Moses to deliver them. Now, if we asked ourselves here in this eighth chapter, right, this whole section of, of, of Noah, right, what, what is the, the gospel here? What, what is the good news, like truly good news according to the story of Noah? The, the simple and, and most accurate answer here is, is seen there in verse 1 again, right? That God remembers his covenant. That God remembers his people. He remembers his promises, right? If, you, if, you remember, if you've been in the Luke, uh, Gospel of Luke recently, maybe you remember in the opening chapter, there's this, this old man named Zechariah. You might know him better as, you know, John the Baptist's dad. Um, Zechariah sang this song about Jesus before Jesus is even born. Uh, and he sings how Jesus is, is, is God and how he shall come uh, to, to visit his people and to redeem his people. And, and then in Luke 172, Zechariah sings that Jesus is coming, and I quote here, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Because God always remembers his covenant. He always remembers his promises. You see, at the coming of Jesus, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he, he acts to remember and to fulfill the covenant promises that he has made. Now let's come back to our, our passage here today. You see, at this point, upon the surface of the earth, uh, all life has been destroyed. It's dead. Everything's dead, right? But here in the second half of Genesis 8-1, we, we see God that, that God remembers his promise, right? And he begins to act. And you see the first thing he does when he's acting? Uh, right there, God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. And this is not just a technical thing. It's not like the wind blew all the water out of the way, and now it's dry. That's not what's going on here. You see, this is the moment that God begins to renew the earth. We might even say that this is the moment that God uh, begins to recreate the earth. And I say that because what follows is eerily similar to the creative narrative in chapter 1. Now, I realize it's been a while at this point, but you remember way back, Genesis 1-2, right where we got started, uh, let me read it to you again. It says, the earth was without form and void. Let me read that better. I didn't do that right. The earth was without form and void. I still didn't do that well. I'm going to try a third time. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So God's Spirit is hovering over the waters in, in Genesis 1. And here in Genesis 8, God made a wind blow over the waters, causing them to subside. Now here's where this connection between the wind and the spirit takes place, right? Between these two verses. And it gets really interesting because in, in the Hebrew, which is the original language is written in, right? In the Hebrew, the word for spirit in Genesis 1-2 is this ruah, R-U-A-H, ruah, okay? And, and in the Hebrew, uh, the word for wind here in 8-1 is ruah, okay? So that's ruah and ruah. You catch the nuance there? Yeah? No, you didn't. I hope not, right? Because there's no nuance, right? It's the exact same word that's being used for wind and being used for spirit here. And the point here is that God is beginning to recreate the world in the same way we see the first time. Life will return. God has redemptive purpose for life on the earth, and he's bringing it back in this regard. 
So then, um, it, it took 40 days to flood the earth. That's pretty quick. It, it's, we're learning here in verses 3 to 5 that it, it's taken five months already before the ark even, the water's gone enough that the ark begins to settle on the top of Mount Ararat. Um, you know, one lesson we learn here, it's a lot easier to flood the earth than to drain the earth, just poor drainage. Um, that's not probably what's happening. But, you know, where it lands here, this Mount Ararat, it's a real place in the world. You can go visit it today if you want to go to Turkey. Uh, it's kind of on the border of Ar Ar Armenia and Iran. It's a, the highest peak. We don't know that it necessarily landed on the highest peak, but the highest peak is 16,000 feet high. To put that in perspective, that's roughly half of what Everest is. Now, uh, over the years, there have been many expeditions looking for the remains of Noah's Ark. I can remember way back in the day seeing fuzzy pictures of, oh, this looks like Noah's Ark from satellites and stuff like that. Uh, some have claimed to find things. There, there's been no substantial proof of anything necessarily, uh, which really isn't surprising. I can remember the first time I hearing that and thinking like, oh, I really wish there was going to be proof because that would, that would like cement it for everybody, right? Um, but you ever seen a, just a wooden barn from 100 years ago that's just been left to the elements out there? Um, they rot, they fall apart, they're pretty much done at that point, and that's 100 years of modern wood. Uh, any untreated wooden boat after thousands of years out in the elements, it's, it's going to be gone like it should be. Uh, so that shouldn't bother you one bit at all, that no one's found a wooden boat. Um, so anyway, now back to Noah's times, the, the ark lands on dry land. Um, and, and maybe like when the plane lands, they're, they're ready to collect their overhead baggage and let's get off this boat. It's been a long flight. Uh, you, you can almost hear your own children, you know, Dad, it's just, it's dry enough out there. Let's go. Um, but this begins another long, probably discouraging time of waiting for Noah and his family in this boat. Uh, and, and they can't even really see what's going on outside is, is kind of the picture we get here, which is why, you know, beginning in verse 6, which is about eight months after they boarded this, this cruise ship now, uh, Noah now begins to run a few experiments, which, uh, you know, really this might be the first instance of the scientific method. Uh, Noah observed, right, uh, we're no longer floating, which tells him there's some land. That's the bit he knows so far. And, and that leads to the questioning aspect, right? The, the assumed question here is, is, is is there dry land out there or is there not? And so he forms this, this sort of hypothesis. The, the land is dry, and so we're going to send out a raven, uh, and how it behaves is going to prove to us that there is dry land. And, and people have asked, well, why the, why the raven, right? What's the deep, significant meaning to the raven? And, and, and the text doesn't tell us. The rest of the scripture doesn't describe this for us in any way, so take this with a grain of salt. But uh, some believe it's because ravens are are unclean words, are unclean birds, in which case they can't be used in sacrifices, in, in which case the raven is just expendable, right? Um, you wouldn't want to save something through the flood and make it expendable, but I, I get it. Maybe some are, think it's just because they can fly forever, so if there's nothing, it's going to be able to stay up there for a very long time. Uh, others think it's <clears throat> because, and I, I tend to lean with this one, that uh, it, it's because ravens eat dead things. And there's this question, right? Is there dry land? Are there bodies out there? Is, is the raven going to go find this stuff? And they're hoping to find that bit of information out. Whatever the case is, though, uh, Noah runs the experiment, and the data collected from this was that the raven doesn't land anywhere. It goes uh, back and forth for, for some time, and, and then eventually it must have found some dry land. That's kind of the picture you get there from verse 7, right, that it eventually doesn't return. So, so, so Noah analyzes his data, and he concludes this. Now that the raven has stopped, there must be some dry land. And so Noah decides to run another experiment. This time he sends out a dove. Now a dove is a, a clean animal. 
uh, less expendable in that regard, although you probably argue the other way. Uh, and those who know birds better than, than I know birds, right, tell me that uh, a dove is what is considered a valley bird. And, and that's not a technical term. It just means a bird that dwells in lower areas, places where there's more vegetation, not the top of a mountain where it's mostly rocks and snow and whatnot. Um, and, and so we, the idea here is it's, uh, that this dove is going to tell Noah if the lower areas, the more inhabitable areas, have life-sustaining vegetation, plants and such, to eat. So if they go out there, is there stuff for us to survive on? Now, the dove comes back empty-beaked, leading Professor Noah to conclude there, there isn't the sort of dry land that we need yet. Uh, seven days later, uh, without securing a grant, Noah runs a third experiment here. He, he sends the dove out again, and this time, after being away all day, the dove does come back, and he's got an olive branch in his beak, her beak. Now, this experiment gave the results he was hoping for. This, this is the conclusive evidence that Noah was looking for, uh, that there is not only dry land, but there's new growth. There is life out there. There's life outside the ark. And this event is why the olive branch has become this symbol of peace in our day. Here it is, this gesture of peace from God to man after this incredible time of judgment, right? Later in Isaiah 9-6, the Messiah will be referred to as the Prince of Peace. And Jesus, who is that Messiah, the Messiah, will say to his disciples, recorded in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do, do, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And, and peace is the message to Noah here. The flood of destruction no longer awaits you outside the doors of this ark. So go, you know, live joyful, fruitful lives. And, and this dove, this this symbol of peace then goes out a third time, and when it doesn't return, the idea is there is life out there. It is gone to, to live into this recreated world. And, and this brings us to the last section that begins in verse 13, where uh, we're given a date here, and if you love word problems, because I know most people do, uh, you can go follow it around, right, and do all this kind of math, and you're going to learn it's been an entire year that has cycled through since they first boarded the ark. Uh, Noah removes some sort of covering here. There's all kinds of theories here of what it is. Um, I find the most compelling is that he took an axe to some piece of wood that allowed him to be able to see out the top. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, after all this time, all this waiting, in verse 16, God finally speaks to Noah again there. <clears throat> God commands Noah and his family to leave the ark, to bring out all the animals, and to multiply. You see, Noah at this point serves for us as a beautiful mo a model of obedience for us. In the previous chapters, we've, we've read four times, right? We, we talked about it last week. Four times, something along the lines of, Noah did all that the Lord commanded. Over and over, right? And here we learn that Noah remains where God put him. In the ark. He, he remains there until God tells him to go out of the ark. See, the, the key to your faith and my faith is, is like Noah's here. He, he believed the word of God that God had spoken to him in the past. And he had to continue to believe that even in the darkness, even in the frustrating months that went by, when everything in his reason would say this should be over, we should be on drowned land, dry land, the Lord has you know, forgotten us, right? All these things that might have gone through his mind in those dark, discouraging days, he's waiting on the Lord to act in his time. Now you remember that, that Jesus told his disciples in John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, let me say it again, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, free from what? Well, among 
other things, free from trying to be God. Free from trying to control everything in your own life. You see, if you believe the believable word of God, you're going to fare far better in the times of waiting on, on God to act. That's a common area that we, we often struggle with. You see, we, and I, when I say we, I mean the whole world, but specifically here, Christians, right? We are, we're not patient people. We don't wait well. We're, we're kind of like, uh, I think it was Carrie Fisher, uh, Princess Leia, right, who famously said instant gratification takes too long. Um, a, a few weeks ago, I, I mixed up some Jello and I put it into the fridge so it could firm up. And I think it was probably 10 minutes later when my youngest daughter, Berkeley, is asking, is it ready yet? I don't remember what I told her. It probably wasn't like, yeah, let's go eat it. But, um, you know, we're, we're all just very impatient people in general. But a far more significance than just our general impatience is this. We don't wait on God well. We're not patient with his timing. Honestly, how do you think you would have done in the ark those last six months? Still waiting, right? Would, would you have climbed out that window? Like, I'm, I'm done with this? Would you have been screaming at God, this is not fair? You said you'd save us, not trap us in this boat up here, this floating coffin. Wouldn't it be better to pursue a way of life that, that trusts God, that's learning to trust God, that's, that's aiming for that? And I ask this because this is where this, this hits home, right? Is, is, is there a situation in your life that requires patiently waiting for the Lord to act for you? I know we, we've all got our, our desires going on in our life. Maybe, maybe you desire children or you desire a, a spouse. You, you desire a, a healthy marriage. You, you desire just good health in, in general. You desire a friend to come to faith in, in Jesus. You, you desire just direction. What should I do with my life? What, what, what should I pursue in college or just in general? And these are all good desires. They're not sinful by any means. Now, Andrew Murray, he, he's been in the presence of the Lord for over a, a hundred years. I mean, he's died, right? Uh, and, and, and he once said this, he said, all the exercises of the spiritual life, our reading and praying, our willing and doing, have, uh, have their very great value. But they can no, go no further than this, that they point the way and prepare us in humility to look to and to depend upon God alone and, and in patience to wait His good time and mercy. Now listen closely. This old language, so it's hard to read sometimes. Listen closely to what he says in his last bit. He says, the waiting is to teach us our absolute dependence upon God's mighty working and to make us, in perfect patience, place ourselves at his disposal. Listen, you, you may face all sorts of difficult trials in this life, and it is, it is true, you know, there's a fear we have, in it, but it is, in, and one aspect of this fear is true, God may not give you everything you want. That's a very real possibility. But God is faithful to you. He is faithful to his people to give you everything that you need. And the difference of those two things is massive. Massive that you're able to trust the Lord will give you everything that you need. Listen, it's not going to rain forever. God is faithful to remember his promises to you just like he remembered Noah in the ark. Now, now let me tell you some of these promises. This is... This is just a 
general oversight of a few things. There are hundreds and hundreds of them, right? We'll, we'll start Genesis 3.16. God promised whoever believes in Christ will not perish, but perish, but have eternal life. You can trust God will remember that promise to you. In Proverbs 3.5, God promised if you trust in Him with all your heart, if you lean not on your own understanding, if in all your ways you submit to Him, then He will make your paths straight. You can trust God will remember that promise to you. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than all of these things? Seek first God's kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. God will remember that promise to you. You see, we all want to be our own sovereign God at times. That's just the reality. You know, give me the controls. I can drive this world. I can run my life better than you, God. And, and yet we, we find out sometimes harder than other times that we're never in charge. We're never really in control, even if we think we are. And the truth is, you don't really want to be. You don't. Let, let go of that. Right? Trust the Lord in ways you haven't yet. And I think that's part of this, right? Is that you, you learn to trust the Lord in ways that maybe you haven't yet. Learn to wait on God's timing as you walk in God's ways, even through great difficulties, especially through great difficulties. Now, to this end, I encourage you, I know I say this every once in a while in sermons, and that's because it's such a meaningful phrase to me, right? It's from Zach Eswine's wonderful book, Sensing Jesus. Weird title, great book. Um, I am not the Christ. I mean, how many times in your life do you find yourself in a tough situation where you just want to be in control? And I am not the Christ. And I, I'm serious. I mean, say it with me real quick. Just out loud. I am not the Christ. One more time. I am not the Christ. We need to know that on a daily basis. To, to you who today are, are tirelessly still fighting to be your own so sovereign God, hear these words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I know that the more that's true of you, the, the more you want to control everything, the more you need to hear those words. Rest is what you need, not control. Rest in the Lord is what you need. And, and listen, to those who are united to God by grace through faith in Jesus, to you, God has promised to be a father. But not, not just a father, to be a good father to rescue you from sin, from death, from wrath. He has promised to indwell you with the Holy Spirit who gives you mighty powers in, in your spiritual walk. He has promised a, a place in His family and in eternity and in His glorious presence. So let me leave you with just one, one more of the many, many promises of God in the, in, in the Scriptures. And, and this one's from Hebrews 13.5. Very fitting here. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it might benefit you sometimes when you find yourself in that tough position where you feel forgotten by the Lord to, to word that even personally to yourselves, you know? But you hear it personally. Your name, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, let's pray. Gracious God, we are impatient people. 
we are people who want our life plans and we want them as quickly as we want our, our morning coffee and microwaved everything and we just like things quick. Father, teach us to trust that you have ordained the timing of all things according to your perfect will, including marriage and children and jobs and a sense of life direction and so much more. Holy Spirit, in our own strength, we will never endure the waiting. And so empower us and, and make us to know and to believe deep down that your timing is always best, even when our hearts are restless with desire. Give us the strength to wrestle against that. Help us to understand that waiting is not merely idleness, but an opportunity to grow in independence upon you. And so make that to happen. And so as we, we wait, let us not grow weary or lose hope, but let our hearts be steadfast, anchored in your unfailing love and faithfulness. Lord, grant us the grace to surrender our desires into your hands. Lord, let me say it again. Lord, grant us the grace to surrender our desires into your hands because we know that you are a good father who gives good gifts to your children. And this we pray in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, thy will be done. Amen.